All right, so this morning we get to talk about our good shepherd, uh, his abundance, his power, and his kingdom. And I'm really excited to talk about this because of all the implications that are in this very familiar miracle. Um, and this, the miracle, the, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle that is in all four Gospels. And the information is essentially the same. Um, I wonder why. Why this, of all the miracles of Jesus, is this included in each of the Gospels? I mean, it's amazing, of course, but is there something more symbolic in it? And so this morning we're going to see many of the characteristics of Jesus in this passage. Many reasons to praise Him and also emulate Him. Um, but also, we're going to see another, there's other powerful kingdom imagery at work here. And we're going to see God's great plan of, of redemption uh, in a microcosm in this parable. And so one of the things that is unique to Mark and not in any of the other Gospels is the mention of sheep and shepherd. And so we're going to use that as our lens and w- by which we see this passage. And if Mark mentions it and it's associated with Jesus' compassion, it should come to our attention. So um, you know, the, the practice of shepherding and sheep was very familiar to their society and still is. If you live in the Middle East, or if you've traveled or spent any time in the Middle East, it's not hard to find sheep and shepherd. Just go outside of, of the uh, city centers. And this is still uh, a, a means of livelihood and, and income and food and clothing for many people around the world. Um, and that's why it's very familiar throughout most of Scripture because this has really... Uh, been the the primary means for Israel, ancient Israel. They were nomadic people. I mean, Abraham was brought out of the city into the wilderness with his flocks. And even when they go into Egypt, you think of the the stark contrast of when they go to Egypt. So, if you don't know anything about ancient Egypt, they were uh, they they were hyper cleanly people. You know, they were your, uh, you know, your uh, germaphobes of today. They would shave any hair off of their, their, their bodies. They would not get near anything that was, that was dirty or that was smelly, especially the, uh, the uh, higher-ups. So imagine these hairy, bearded, uh, less than, than cleanly Israelites coming in by the thousands with all of their animals. So they weren't right in Egypt. They were, they were off in the, uh, the uh, pastures because they wouldn't... Um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't interact with them. So, just a side note, when you think about Joseph's brothers coming in to meet him when he's in the palace, this is scandalous that these uncleanly men would ever make their way into Pharaoh's palace. So, there, there's this, this is what typifies God's people. These lowly animals and this thankless job of being a shepherd and a, and a herdsman. But, Israel's great king, their, their king example, David himself, the shepherd, and, I, and identifies that. And all of their leaders after him were expected to be shepherds. The nature of a shepherd, one who is humble, one who is consistent, one who is protective, one who cares for and builds up his flock is what was to describe the leaders of Israel. But over time, Israel's leaders became fat and they became lazy and they took advantage of the sheep and God chastises them for them. And their sheep, without leaders who cared for them, became scattered. They were taken in by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And they remain scattered all over the world to this day. But there was a promise from early on 
that a seed of David would be on on the throne forever. And that he also, as king, would be a shepherd. And there's a promise in Ezekiel 34, I want you to turn there, that God would no longer tolerate wicked shepherds. How is it that God would protect His people from not being neglected by wicked shepherds? He would become a shepherd Himself. And He describes how He cares for His people as a shepherd cares for His flock. Now, if you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard me read from this again. If your memory's not that good, well, I'm going to refresh you. It's one of my favorite passages. I'm going to use every opportunity that I can to bring it up. We're going to get the context a little later, but I want to get God's answer and God's plan for his people, picking up in verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I'll require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. Notice the thrust of the rest of this passage. I want to read it with emphasis because I want you to get the point of what kind of God our God is and how He views His people. Picking up in the latter half of verse 10. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search out for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country and I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Amen. And to seal it with a promise, skip down to verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, My servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. There is no stronger exclamation point on the end of that section than I am the Lord. I have spoken. So we're going to move from the bloody banquet of last week to the bountiful banquet this week in the feeding of the 5,000. So if you have your Bibles and you're in Ezekiel, flip back to Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 6. Picking up in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And he said, And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they went and they found out, and they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. As we open your word and we see your plan of redemption unfold, that you would send your son to go before us. You would send your son and human flesh, that He might be our example, but more importantly, that He might be our Savior and our King and our Chief Shepherd who continues to feed and guide and direct and correct us when we need it. Lord, I pray that as we look at this example that is so beloved in the ministry of Jesus, how He multiplies bread and fish and feeds thousands. That we look at it anew. And see the depth of what You are doing in Your people. How You are building Your kingdom. How You provide for all those who come to You. How they lack nothing. They are all satisfied. Lord, may we be satisfied in You. May we know we lack nothing in You. May we look to You for all of our provision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, this is mentioned in all four Gospels. And I'm going to bring in details from each of the four Gospels, but we're going to spend most of our time in Mark, and we're going to finish really strong in John. But one of the things Matthew helps us with is he gives us context. So what's the transition from last week to this week? Last week was the beheading of John the Baptist at uh, Herod's bloody birthday party. And um, Matthew connects this. And he says that John's disciples came to Jesus and told him everything that happened. And Jesus, of course, is hurt and he, and he, and he withdraws to, to, to be with the Father. And so... He withdraws and he's by himself. And then as the disciples come back, he instructs them to do the same. And so some amount of time has passed. Uh, and what we do know that John tells us in chapter 6 that the Passover is soon at hand. So this is, this is springtime. And so uh, what we have to do, what we have to read this morning, we'll read in the context of Passover approaching and uh, you know, coming on the heels of the disciples coming back from Jesus sending them out. And so where we start in verse 30 really recaps what we saw two weeks ago in verses 7 through 13. And when the apostles returned, so return from what? Remember, 
couple weeks ago, when he called them to himself, he calls the twelve from disciples, learners, to apostles, sent ones. He sends them out and he gives them authority to preach the gospel, to heal, to cast out demons, to anoint the sick. And they come back and they tell him all that they had done and taught. They're so excited to come back and, and share what they've done with their master, with their teacher. And so there's many ministry lessons we can learn from them. And the first one, it's kind of simple. When Jesus uses you and sends you out and good things happen, where's the first place you should go once they do? You go to Jesus and tell Him. Give Him the glory. Look what we've done in Your name. Look what Your authority has has done. People are praising Your name because of us. Talk to Him. This is something that is so easy to miss. This natural conversation that you are empowered by Jesus, but also you need Him. This ongoing conversation between him and his disciples. And when he hears about all that they had done, Jesus is not, Jesus is very powerful, but he knows the limitations of his disciples, and he's not a workaholic. Look what he says here and come away by yourselves, it's implied here with me, to a desolate place and rest a while. This is also very important in ministry. In times of difficult busyness, to spend time away with Jesus. Not just to come back and talk to him, but find refreshment in him. Find a desolate place away from the distractions, away from all of the burdens and expectations, and be with Jesus. So simple, but so essential. The greatest need of the disciples and their greatest priority is their time with Christ. And so many times we can often put ministry over time with Christ. So I'm doing all these other good things, but I don't have time to go before Him in prayer. I don't spend time in silence. I don't go to His Word and hear His voice as He speaks through His Scriptures. And so He gives them this important principle of rest and refreshment. For many were coming and going, so other people... They're experiencing ministry success now. They've become popular. So many people were coming and going. They're seeing the power that's coming out of the apostles' hands. They have no time for leisure. They they weren't even eating. Jesus even cares for their free time, their leisure, and their food, that they'd be nourished. But the disciples, as many good worker bees are, they're just moving and going and moving and going. Jesus has to remind them to rest in Him. And I think of how many pastors struggle in this. How many missionaries struggle in this. If you're anything like me, I, I love to read biographies. I love to read about the saints from the past. I love to read missionaries who tirelessly work and wake up early and go to sleep late and pastors who do the same. But how many of them die in miserable health and die young And so how much of that is zeal for the kingdom of God and how much of that is resting in their own strength? Charles Spurgeon is famous for saying many things. One of my favorites is he said, I would rather wear out than rust out. Amen to that. But he did wear out. He died in very poor health at 58. And the last few years of his life were 
not very comfortable. And that goes the same for many of those who have gone before us in the faith. How many pastors I see do not take Jesus' example here and go away with Him and spend time with Him and find refreshment in Him. If you look at any of the resources for pastors, the topic of burnout comes up so much because it is such a real thing. Jesus is, is teaching them that I am sufficient. I've given you the authority. I know who needs the healing. I know who needs the teaching. Make sure you prioritize your time with me. Now that's one side of the coin. And with our men, we, this last month we studied the discipline of work. And so we talked about the two ends of the spectrum. We are easy. We're, we're either uh, workaholics. We overwork or we are lazy. We don't like to work. I think our culture probably leans on the latter. J.C. Ryle talks about needing the bridle and the spur. Those who work too much, they need the bridle. They need to be pulled back a little bit. Those who are lazy and love sitting on their couch more than anything else, they need the spur. And so in our culture, we, we, we have to be careful of either extreme because it's really easy to be lazy and have everything come to our, our, our doorstep and not work. But it's also easy to try to work in our own strength to our own detriment, to the detriment of our own health. And as you're sitting here this morning, you know who you are. You know which one of those you are. And if you're working too hard, do you trust in God's provision? Do you work so much that you don't have to trust in the Lord? What does that say about how you view Him? Or do you just do the bare minimum? What kind of witness is that to His name? So, this is, this is the disciples' first lesson. As soon as they get back, Jesus is always teaching. This is the great thing about Jesus' discipleship. Is that He is teaching in everything that He says and does. He doesn't have to say, He doesn't have to quote Old Testament Scripture. He doesn't have to be preaching to teach them. Let me give you another example. You've had success in ministry. Now go aside and rest. So now, they're trying to get away. They're trying to go to the desolate place. They row away in, in a boat, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. You've got to commend their zeal. The people hear that they're coming, and they run ahead on foot. They see the boat going from one side to the other. Uh, the sea of, sea of Galilee is large, but it's small enough where you, if you see Jesus and the disciples going, you can try to catch up with them. They didn't have prop motors or anything like that. And, and so how does Jesus respond? So Jesus is mourning the loss of his bosom buddy, quite literally, you know, jumping in their, their mother's wombs together in the death of John the Baptist. And the, and the disciples are resting from ministry, and everyone comes to meet them. And now how would we respond? If we were tired, and we were hungry, probably, we'd be short-tempered, we'd be, we, we, we'd be hangry, we'd be like, all right, why? Why can't you just give me some time alone? But how does Jesus respond? Verse 34. This is going to be the pastoral and theological heart of our text. We're going to lean in here for a few minutes. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. 
He began to teach them many things. There's a few things I want to bring out of this. When he sees the crowd, he doesn't see people who are interrupting his plans. Quite often, in our plans, the Lord, through people, interrupts us because there's something valuable he wants to teach us. He doesn't see people who are just a hindrance to his leisure time. He sees them with compassion. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And sheep by nature need a shepherd. Sheep need someone to care for them or they will eat themselves right off the edge of a cliff or will allow wolves into the flock. Even the name that we use for our ministers of the gospel, pastor, comes from pasture. It is so closely related to sheep that they're one and the same that sheep need shepherds. And this has always been God's concern for His people. This language here of sheep without a shepherd is nothing new. When they were going in the wilderness and Moses was getting old, he asked the Lord for a favor. Lord, do something for these people. It's going to be in Numbers 27. You can turn there quickly or it will be on the screen. But I want you to see the language when Moses, as a good leader, is concerned for the people of God and he petitions God. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them By the way, this is a great description of pastoral ministry. Who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in? That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. This is all the way of Israel in the wilderness. Sheep who needed a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, Yeshua in Hebrew, the the, the, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Even in the early days of Israel, there was a concern for sheep without a shepherd. Now remember I told you in Ezekiel 34, I'd give you the context. Why does God have to say, I will save my people. I will seek my people. I will be their shepherd. Because their shepherds are utter failures. And so I want to give you the context now. When Jesus sees these people Coming to see him, he knows that they are sheep without a shepherd. Why? The beginning of Ezekiel 34 gives us this context. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You ate the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The the weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became like food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. And they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. I'm sure Jesus had this in mind. And Mark has this in mind when he quotes this. Therefore, this is why Jesus had compassion on them. Knowing that sheep need to be cared for and there are no shepherds to care for them. It shows His heart as a shepherd king. And the type of shepherd he is. 
And what is the first thing he does? What is their greatest need? And he has compassion on them because they're sheep. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Luke tells us that he teaches them of the kingdom of God. Jesus' concern and compassion as a shepherd is for souls. Food, piece of cake. I can take care of that. He begins to teach. This is their greatest need. The word disciple just means learner. Their greatest need was to learn about Him. Was to learn the kingdom of God in Him. And He's teaching them many things. And when the divine shepherds speak, His people hear Him. One of the other great passages that describes Jesus' role as shepherd is John 10. I'm going to go all to, to, the, to the greatest hits this morning. John 10, I want to pick up in verse 14. Again, this is all pointing to Jesus' nature and the way that He interacts with His own. John 10, 14. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own and my own know Me. If there is not a shepherd in the house of Israel, God Himself will be their shepherd. Just as the Father knows Me and I know the Father and I lay down My life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. More on that later. I must bring them also and they will listen to My voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves Me. Because I lay down My life that I might take it up again. No one lays it down for Me. But I lay it down of My own accord. I have authority to lay it down. But I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Notice how we know the Good Shepherd. He speaks to the sheep. They hear His voice and they respond. But more importantly, He lays down His life. Any Good Shepherd worth His salt would stand between His sheep and a bear. Jesus stands between His sheep and the wrath of God so that they might have life in Him. And He lays down His life freely for them. That is how good our shepherd is. Because the wicked, fat, lazy shepherds of Israel never could do that. And as a good shepherd does when he goes away, he makes sure that his sheep are cared for and he entrusts under-shepherds. Peter uses this language that as elders who shepherd their flock must give an account to the chief shepherd They must care for someone else's flock. As pastors serve, we are not serving our sheep. We are entrusted with Christ's sheep until He returns. This challenge was given to Peter at great embarrassment. Still in John. Go to John chapter 21. After the resurrection, after Peter had denied Jesus and He's coming into restoration and Jesus cooks the best breakfast ever. When Jesus gets to cook you uh, fresh baked bread and fresh, fresh fish on the, on the seashore, take advantage of it. But then he asked Peter a very pressing question. And this, if you've talked to me before about pastoral ministry, this is the verse that has been ringing in my ears since I first realized that I would become a pastor. And I hope it always does. Three questions to Peter, which is typical for Peter because it takes him that long to get it, but also because he denied Christ three times. Begin in verse 15 of John 21. 
When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He didn't say, I know. He said to me, he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You can tell the, you can almost hear the frustration in his voice. They have to answer this again. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What does love for Jesus look like? Caring for his sheep, feeding them, tending them, protecting them. Peter, you were an embarrassment to yourself and to me not long ago. But from now on, you are going to feed and tend my sheep. You're going to show your love for me by your love for my sheep. This is what Jesus' compassion look like, looks like. That his sheep are healthy and fed and cared for. And I want us to think this morning, do we have the compassion of Jesus? For those who don't know him. Those we're far off, or maybe like those in the, in the field who are just coming to see something miraculous. Do we have the compassion that Jesus does for their souls? That they would know Him. That they would grow in His Word. That they would hear His voice. Do we want to feed them and point them to Him? And I, I love in our corporate prayer on Sunday morning, that so often we are praying for people you are sharing the gospel with. I love that that is part of the DNA of our body. That our compassion for people is not just for their present circumstances, but that their hearts would be transformed, that their ears would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would have life in Him, that they would know Him as their good shepherd. And do we have the compassion of Jesus, for those who do know Him and who have been under delinquent shepherds, who have been hurt and abused in churches. You know how many people I talk to who have been through horrible things at the hands of so-called pastors? And do we want to bind them up, build them up, and encourage them in Christ? Do we see people's need to run to Christ and find their, 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 their comfort in Him and to be taught by Him and to grow in Him. But more importantly, maybe we don't have to look that far. Maybe we just look home. Do you know your need for that? Do you know that your, your shepherd desires you to come and sit at His feet and learn from His Word and He desires you to be built up and strong and cared for? That and just a moment. So Jesus begins to teach. The day goes on and on, and as good disciples do, they wonder, when's lunch? Jesus, when's dinner? It's starting to get dark, picking up in verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Now they give Jesus orders, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. This is a long day. This is the middle of nowhere. It's supposed to be rest for them. Are they just being thoughtful or is this self-preservation? Maybe a little bit of both. 
And, it's, and of course, Jesus does not give them the answer that they expect. Jesus, send them away. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. John says that Jesus was testing them. And he said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Denarii was a day's wages for a worker. This is almost a year's worth of a laborer's salary. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of people. You give them something to eat. I love that Jesus forces them to stop complaining and think of a solution. Isn't like, I love how the, the, the disciples are us in the text. All right, let's just complain first. Jesus, you do something about this. And, uh, and then the question is, well, they make use of their own wisdom. Because now they'll look around, they're pulling out their, their, their pockets, their poor little disciples, and we don't have 200 denarii worth of food. But will they remember who is standing right in front of them? Will they remember his power? Will they remember to go to him? And just like us, how often do we complain first, then look to our own wisdom before we look to Jesus? How often is Jesus our last resort when we're in need? And then I love how Jesus' response is so perfect here. And he said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Don't miss this. How many do you have? Our temptation is always to think, oh, I need more. All right, Jesus, I'll come back to you after I've done more, more study, after I've got my promotion at work, then I can be useful to you. After I get more, more money, I can be useful. What does Jesus say? How much do you have right now? He will provide what he requires. Jesus makes provision with what they have on hand. And our shepherd has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about in your mind how often you make excuses? Well, I need more of this. I need to do this. This must be done first before God can use me. What does that say about the one who has called you? What does that say about your trust in the Lord? We're all guilty of this. All right, well, once I finish this or this, then I can be used for the kingdom of God. So then he goes on. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they find out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So a couple of important details here. This word for sit is not the typical word for sit. It's, it's, it means to recline at table. The, the same one that they used during the Lord's Supper. Recline at table. This is when the master tells you to come and lay on the, the couches and eat. You lay on your side with your left hand and eat with, on your left elbow and you eat with your right hand. Recline on this green grass. This is the, the beauty of the green abundance of spring. And Jesus, the master of the feast, telling you to recline with him. Because he wants you to join for a feast. And he tells them to sit into groups. And so they sat down, again, reclined in groups by hundreds and fifties. Now, a few things we can pull from this. One, this is exactly what happened in the wilderness. To make sure that the people got cared for, they were separated into hundreds and fifties so that there could be elder oversight over them. To make sure that no one was missed. Also, it shows us that in the kingdom of God, there is always order in the congregation. 
There is not chaos. Jesus works to make sure that no one was missed in the food distribution. And they may not have understood, but they obeyed. And so I was thinking about this. Do we, when we hear the words of Christ, do we just obey or are we like the disciples that won't obey until it makes sense in our minds? Okay, wait, Jesus, I've got to ask all of my 500 qualifying questions before I will be obedient to you. What do we do like the simple sheep did? The shepherd said, sit. Okay, we sit. And so they sit. And Jesus does something that should be familiar to us. Verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven. I don't know why we look down when we pray. I have no idea. But Jesus always looks up to heaven. Looks up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples before the people. Sound familiar? Chapter 14, the Lord's Supper. The same sequence of events. Jesus blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. And then the disciples gave it to the people. Now you're seeing the provision. The Father sends the Son. The Son gives glory to the Father in blessing the food and hands it to the disciples who hand it, hands it to the people. More on that later. Hopefully you see where I'm going here. When you are tired and hungry and frustrated, Jesus nourishes. Jesus cares for the people. And He looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave it to the disciples to set before the people, and He divided the two fish among them all. In one short verse here, verse 42, and they all ate and were satisfied. It's so matter of fact. It's so amazing that 5,000 people ate with a couple pieces of bread and a couple fish. It is so matter of fact because that's just who Jesus is. Mark states it so plainly because we should come to expect this by now. You know what I love about verse 42? So short and we can miss this. And they all ate and were satisfied. Everyone. Everyone ate. Everyone satisfied. There is unity and equality when dining with Jesus. No one is left out. No one stars. Not only do you eat, but you eat unto satisfaction. You are content laying on green grass on a sunny spring day with your shepherd presiding over you. Man, sounds like a good day. Listening to Jesus teach, having Him multiply food for you and laying down on a grassy meadow. He feeds everyone who comes to Him and everyone is satisfied. Our shepherd does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not only does He feed them enough to satisfy them, but, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. There's enough for them and enough for 12 baskets left over. There's nothing wasted in God's kingdom. 12 additional baskets. But why? Good question. We'll get there in a minute. Verse 44. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Matthew tells us this is not including women and children. It's probably seven, eight, nine thousand people. Off the loaves and the fish. And I love that in every kingdom analogy that Jesus uses, in every kingdom reality, it always blows our expectations away. Remember in the parable of the sower, the average yield 
for a, a fruit tree or for grain production was probably 20 to, 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 to 30. Jesus says the kingdom of God, some 30, some 60, some 100. Every time God takes our puny expectations and blows them out of the water. He always exceeds them. All right, so we went through our text quickly, but if you look in your outline, there's some application here, and this is where I'm excited to do this. So there's practical, we're going to do practical application for this miracle, and then theological application. So one, the practical application. So I want you to meditate for a moment on Jesus' care in this passage. He has concern for rest, concern for food, concern for their instruction. He invites them to lay down and feast. It gives us a little glimpse of the Psalm of David that we opened up with. And if you are in Christ, this is your shepherd. This is what he does for his sheep. And if you are not, this is what you are missing out on. So I want you to open up to Psalm 23, and I want you to read this in light of our current parable, or excuse me, not parable, account of Jesus. Many of you memorized this as a kid. Many of you, many of you still have this memorized. I know I have it memorized, but if I was asked to say it off the top of my head right now, I would probably not be able to. So I'm going to read it. But I want you to think about each line of this. Think about it in the context of the people who are sitting on this pasture in front of Jesus, but think about it for you. If you are in Christ, do you read this psalm as Jesus being your shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Everyone eats, everyone is satisfied. He knows exactly what they need. They they want of nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. There's a peace and a beauty in the spring grass. He leaves me beside still waters. They're in a desolate place, but if you are eating and dining with Jesus, you might as well be by still waters. There's a a calm in being with Him. And by His teaching and by His nourishing and by His provision, He restores my soul. And He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake as a good shepherd does. He does not let His sheep wander off of the path or go down the path of destruction, but the path of righteousness because it brings Him glory. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The wicked world is all around them and all around us. But the power that is in the world is not greater than the power that is within you. The power that protects and preserves you through His Holy Spirit. I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Just like the disciples' greatest need is to be with Jesus, our greatest need is to be with Him. And your rod and your staff, they come for me. Yes, Jesus, thank you for disciplining me. Thank you for directing me. And as we see in the feeding of the 5,000, He prepares a table before me. The Pharisees and all the Roman Empire want to destroy Him. But they, sitting with Jesus, and He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. There's an abundance. There's baskets of overflowing. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The promise of Jesus being your shepherd is that you are His forever. He provides for you forever. You will dwell in His house forever. He says He goes away to prepare a place for you. 
this should be such a comfort to us who are scared and lost and wayward sheep who have been found by a good shepherd. How many of you meditate on this? How many of you know the peace and the calm that the psalmist speaks about? How many of you never stop moving and thinking and doing long enough to do that? And I've said it a couple times and I'll say it again. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His power is not lacking. He still has great compassion on those who come to Him, who sit at His feet and listen. He still provides and nourishes for His people when we see no other way, nothing in our own power. And if you don't know that, I want that for you. I want you to know what it feels like to be cared for and provided for and protected by the great shepherd. And that is a beautiful application to this text. And that's typically where the application comes. And I don't want to miss that in the text because it's there. But I want to go a little further theologically in our last couple minutes. What is going on here? Because as we're going to see in the next couple chapters... Jesus begins to have some frustration with the disciples. And his frustration is over what's going on with these loaves. Look at chapter 6 of Mark, verse 52. Next week we're going to look at Jesus walking in the water. They're astounded because he walks in the water. But what is Jesus frustrated about? For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What does bread have to do with Jesus walking on the water? Okay, maybe it's a coincidence that Mark brings this up. But what if, we, what if he does it again? Flip one more page in your Bible, maybe two. Mark chapter 8. The disciples forgot to bring bread. Shocking. And they discuss with one another the fact that they have no bread. This is Mark 8, picking up in verse 16. Jesus, aware of this, says, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Reoccurring theme. But look what he says. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? There's something they're not getting. There's something they're not understanding. There's something they're not remembering. When I broke the five loaves of, of the five for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said 12. So we'll get to the seven and the 4,000 uh, in a couple weeks. Okay, so he brings to their attention the, the, the breaking of bread, the, the miracle of the loaves, and the twelve left over. So as we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, and if you're in any of the Gospels, the, the, the miracles themselves are not the point. The miracles in themselves are not the end uh, in, in and of them, themselves. So as he taught them that day, he taught them about the kingdom, but did he show them as well? So let's, let's recap. We've got a compassionate, divine shepherd. Sheep who desperately need one, who are tired and hungry. And the shepherd miraculously feeds and satisfies everyone who comes to him. He blesses the food, breaks it and gives out bread, looking forward to Passover. Not only those who came to him, but 12 extra baskets. Okay, where are you going with this? The fact that there were 12 baskets is mentioned in all four Gospels. Again in chapter 8. You think there's a point here. 
If you've been paying attention, the number 12 has significance in Hebrew numerology. One, it means completeness, it means fullness. But it's also the full number of Israel because it represents the 12 tribes of Israel. When he calls apostles, how many does he call? 12. You think that's by coincidence. If he's going to recreate Israel, because Israel has all of these wicked shepherds who are not caring for the sheep, he's going to recreate the 12 tribes with 12 apostles. Signifying the fullness of it. The Father sending the Son, sending the apostles to the nations. But what about the 12 baskets? Jesus says, all who come to me are going to be fed. Nothing will be lost. So here's where I want you to turn to John, where we're going to bring all this together. So turn to John chapter 6. And this is where we're going to close and prepare ourselves for communion. Same account, one verse. John 6, 12. And when he had eaten... When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. That nothing may be lost. If you want to see a picture of the kingdom of heaven, no one will snatch you out of my hand. Nothing may be lost. Everything will be preserved. All 12 tribes, all Israel, every bit will be preserved. I am creating a new kingdom. You are my 12 apostles. You are the 12 pillars in my new kingdom. And I am filling the baskets to the brim. Nothing will be lost. No one will be lost. There are other sheep. I'm feeding these ones in the pasture right now, but there are other sheep. I will bring those in. And there will be one shepherd. There will be one flock. Jesus is showing them that you don't have to work so hard to build my kingdom. I will build my kingdom in my own strength. And I'm going to show you by giving you 12 baskets full to make it so clear to you that my kingdom is greater than anything you could ever do with your hands. I will take these, these, pity, you know, these pitiful little loaves and fishes and I will give you 12 baskets to show you that my kingdom, true Israel, will be made by my hand. You just need to rest in me. I will do the work of growing my kingdom and I will do it completely and I will not lose one. Amen. And this is where I love the Gospel of John because he brings the theological context in. Now we're going to bring this home and prepare ourselves for communion. Same chapter. What does Jesus talk about the next day? John 6.22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that they had They had uh, been only one boat there, and then Jesus had entered the boat with his disciples. So Jesus walks on water, goes to the other side. They notice the boat's missing the next day, picking up in verse 22. I know we did pick up in 22. Sorry, 26. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, after they follow him, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The bread is still at play here. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. Man's desire is always, What must I do? I must be able to work to my salvation. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
So he said to them, then they, excuse me, then they said to him, then what sign do you do that we might see you, we might see and believe? Uh, duh, look at yesterday. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. It's like open mouth, insert foot. Like they couldn't have softball set this up for Jesus any better. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When Jesus says, you give them something to eat, give them me. I am the bread of life. I am the only thing they need. But I said to you that you have seen and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Never. If you're wondering, Hebrews 6 from Wednesday still unresolved, I will never cast you out. It's going on. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. Look at verse 12 again. Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Jesus is is telling them and showing them nothing will be lost. Everything given to me, everyone in my kingdom, I will never cast out, and I will raise them up on the last day. This is how you can have assurance in me, because I swear it. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The gospel is not just a one-time salvation prayer. It is being sealed in Jesus Christ. It is being held in his hand, being protected forever. It is being his sheep, he your shepherd. And because he has risen to new life, he will raise you to new life. All of this is here in the feeding of the 5,000. The last thing I want to show you, this will be our preparation for communion as he continues on in this. Takes it even a step further. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat it, so that one may eat of it and not die. This is a matter of life and death, eating Jesus, the true bread of life. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the, li- for the life of the world is my flesh. And if that's not clear enough, the Jews are still disputing amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. When you approach Christ's table, it signifies the bread that if you eat of it, you will live forever. His flesh. Meaning, 
He has put His life on the cross for you. You you believe in Him, the One in whom the Father has sent. And you partake joyfully because He is your shepherd and He feeds you bountifully. And you drink of His blood. His sacrifice and atoning work for your sins. This table is for us and it is a feast. It is green grass. It is a comfortable summer or spring afternoon with Jesus. It is a joy to take in. But if you don't know Him, it is condemnation for you. I ask you, if you don't know Him, to remain in your seats. And if you want to know Him, we would love to talk with you and pray with you. I want to give you a few moments to prepare your hearts and minds to go before His table. Lord, we love You. We praise You. You are such a great God. You knew without You, He would be like sheep gone astray. Scattered all over the earth. But You seek us and save us and draw us to Yourself. You are a good shepherd. Loves His people. Sent Your Son to preside over us, to care for us, to intercede for us. Lord, I pray that we would never lose the awe and wonder of that. He is the one who turned loaves and fishes into enough for thousands. But even greater, He is the one who turned dead people into living people. He is the one who gave His flesh and His blood that we might have life and life everlasting. And that as we approach this table, we do it soberly, but we do it joyfully because it is ours in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.